0: And welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast. I am your host Jeff Nimnick. Really appreciate you tuning in for another episode here. Uh, first off, want to thank you guys uh, for making this the number one predator hunting podcast on the market today. Um, it takes a lot of partners to make this happen, um, you know. So, but it starts with you guys listening, and I really appreciate all the feedback I've been getting. Um, you know, if you have some ideas for future podcasts, things you'd like to hear, you know, hit me up. Go to CoyoteCraze.com. Uh, you'll have access to my email, to some of my social media links. You know, you can send me a direct message on Instagram, shoot me an email. Um, you know, if you got some ideas, I want to, I want to hear what you guys, you know, want to hear about. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can bring you that info. So once again, thank you guys, uh, for making this the number one podcast, but on this particular episode, got a good friend of mine, uh, Warren Offenberg. Now Warren is a Southeast United States guy. Um, you know, Georgia specifically. He was one of the co-founders of the Georgia Predator Hunters Association. And I had the privilege to, to meet Warren probably back in the late 2000s. Um, I went down there. They brought me down. The Georgia Predator Hunters Association brought me down there. I did some seminars at a big sports show they were doing. And then I got the chance to go hunt with them at night a little bit down there and uh, killed my first gray fox ever down there with them. But uh, for me, it, it immersed me in a whole new culture of coyote hunting down there, something that's intrigued me. Um, I haven't been back there since uh, just haven't had, you know, the time or, or ability to get back down there, you know, so I, I'm curious to get Warren on the, on the episode here. And, and we're going to talk about just the different culture, um, of Eastern coyote hunting, especially Southeastern coyote hunting, the newness to it, um, kind of some of the different tactics and, and the way they approach calling coyotes. And then also Warren's the owner of a, of a thermal company called Full Moon Optics. So, um, I wanted to visit with him specifically about specifications. And, you know, if you're in the market for buying a new thermal and you start reading the spec sheets between one thermal and the other, you know, how do you interpret that? What where all those numbers mean? Because I sure don't know. Um, but hopefully he can explain all that to us that maybe the next time you're in the market to, to get a new thermal and you start looking at all those specs, um, you know, you have a better idea. But before we get going, I need to take a minute to thank this episode's sponsor, which is Swagger Bipods. Now, i'm a i'm a huge swagger bipod guy if you watch the last stand um if you've listened to these podcasts before you know i've talked about them many many times and you know i specifically run the hunter forty two i have it in the veil camo pattern you know we're hunters i like camo um i think it looks pretty sharp on my black rifle um but uh you know the forty the forty two inch version works better for me because I'm sitting on a lot of side hills now they make a twenty nine inch version um which obviously is not gonna get as tall for sitting on side hills so if you're, you know, if you hunt that type of train where you're sitting on lots of side hills, want a little more maneuverability, you know, I would definitely look into that 42 inch version over the 29. Now they do make a quick detach version as well. That's what Rick Pollette shoots. If you see him on any of the last stand videos, he's shooting that quick detach in the 42 inch version as well. But, uh, you know, pretty simple design. You know, when I hook it onto my Daniel Defense MK12, I have a Picatinny rail, so all I have to do is buy the the Picatinny rail adapter that Swagger sells, um, and it's a real simple fix, locks it up tight to my gun, and I don't have to worry about it. I'm pretty much hands-free walking in and out of the stand. So if you're in the market for a new bipod want to check out what Swagger has to offer, visit SwaggerBipods.com. Well, Warren, great to have you on the podcast, man. Appreciate you having me. It's been a while. You know, we've... Uh, we've been texting back and forth every now and then, but, uh, you know, haven't really talked in a while, you know, how was the, uh, how was the coyote season down in Georgia so far?
1: Uh, well, you know, ours never stops. So, um, we had a pretty productive fall. Uh, obviously with the competition scene growing so much, we have a lot more guys coming in here to hunt. Um, you know, they do the Eastern in January and we have a lot of guys come in and, and, uh, this, this is a hotbed for them and, uh had some really good numbers come out of Georgia um so we're just now getting into planting season uh one of the limitations that that we have here in middle Georgia is uh you know typically the fall early winter coyote season for everybody else we still have crops on the ground so you can't see in the fields uh now that they've started cutting the crops getting ready to plant new stuff uh we've been hot at it for the last two months and um Been pretty successful. More so than you were seeing more coyotes than we normally do. Bigger groups. Really? I should say.
0: Nice. Now, when you say, what makes, when you talk about that Eastern competition, what do you think makes Georgia the destination? I mean, it just, the way that the the landscape lays out a little bit compared to maybe, uh, you know, some of the surrounding states? Uh,
1: That's a huge contributor to it, but there's been a lot of research done uh university of georgia has done several good studies over the last four or five years focusing on uh population movement so we've gotten a lot more data there and just we have such a larger concentration of coyotes here that it's just a numbers thing too terrain does make it easier but it's a numbers thing too there's a lot of coyotes in georgia
0: nice that's a good problem to have you know if you're a coyote hunter
1: exactly (laughs) Well, the other thing too is, you know, as as we start to populate more here, and, and a lot of the what used to be rural areas now, you know, I mean, everywhere you look around me, you know, there's houses where they're pushing down, you know, pecan trees, and there's a mile up the road from me, there's still cotton stalks standing in the field, and people are building houses in it. Oh, really? So as that grows more, obviously it's pushing the coyotes into more concentrated areas too. So their their habitat is subsiding some. So that's why I think while we're starting to see their typical roaming or typical claim territory is getting smaller just because the landscape's shrinking.
0: Have you noticed the uh, gray fox numbers dropping at all with the coyotes going up?
1: Um, they're actually increasing. No kidding. Um, you know, we... Um, the Reds were at one time hunted almost to extinction. And we've seen an increase in both species. Now the Reds obviously are coming back at a little bit stronger pace. But the other thing that we've have happened here, because so many guys are, I mean, you know, you've seen it with your contest. Now there were two contests a year. It seems like there's three a month.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. a lot
1: of the smaller local well, these guys are out there specifically hunting the coyote, and there's not that many people recreationally hunting that are out there killing fox. So that's part of what's contributing to it, too. I think the fox numbers increasing is not that many people are hunting them like they used to.
0: They're focusing specifically Focus more on the coyotes. coyotes. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes yeah. sense. You know, for those who don't know, I actually was down hunting with Warren here. We were just talking about that. What was that? Probably like 10 years ago?
1: It was at least 10 years It was ago. a long yeah, time but, uh, ago,
0: you know, and, um, that was the first the first gray fox I ever killed was down there with you guys, you know? And uh, I thought, man, these things are pretty dang cool. I don't, you know, and I always thought coyotes is the big thing, you know, but I thought to myself, man, I wish I can't, if I lived in a country like this, man, I'd be after gray fox. Those, it's kind of fun.
1: It, the thing about a gray is, you know, uh, fox hunts used to be big here. I mean, there were people actually come from Canada down here. That was an, an industry here that people would come from all over to do the horseback traditional English-style fox hunts. And when, when this was back, you know, in the 60s and 70s, when, you know, they hunted the reds close to extinction. So, you know, as their numbers decreased, the difference in a red fox and a gray fox is that a gray fox can climb. So they would, um, when they would start to try to run the grays, I mean, they climb a tree and the hunt's over. The dogs couldn't do anything with it. And that's really what led to the spread of the coyote in the state of Georgia. Back in the mid to late 60s, there were a group of trappers that realized, I mean, you run a coyote for days. So they would actually, the the coyotes they were trapping, they would sell them to these fox pens, and instead of running fox, they'd run coyotes. (laughs) So they started selling to these fox pens, these fox hunting plantations all across the state of Georgia and that's how they rapidly moved across the state so fast.
0: That's interesting, man. That's interesting. I always I always really find it interesting just in different parts of the country how how things differ just a little bit, you know, how things kind of got started, you know, the history of predator hunting in that area, you know, it's always a little bit different, you know, and you know, it seems to me like y- your neck of the woods calling coyotes is fairly new. I mean, would you agree compared to like out west, you know, where guys have been doing it, you know, it seems like it's it a has. new it's, thing that's maybe really in the last fifteen to twenty years, kind of a deal.
1: You know, like you said, ten years ago, you know, most of the conversations were around guys that were, um, you know, they were in the deer stand, and happened to see a coyote and shot it. Um, you, you had small pockets of guys that hunted, but as uh, as interest in the sports grown, as technology has grown, first night vision, now growing into thermal and some of the other things that make it so much easier, um, there's definitely been a huge growth spurt in it and a bigger focus on it.
0: What was what was some of your first experiences there in Georgia, you know, calling coyotes? I mean, when did you kind of get the itch to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this stuff together, I'm going to start going out and, and specifically trying to call in coyotes?
1: It's kind of a funny story. I, I, I came home from work one day and my wife, you know, meets me at the door and slams the door open and says, you've got to do something about this okay what's this (laughs) she literally had been sitting on our front porch that day at lunchtime and a coyote chased our cat right by the right by our front porch so we would hear coyotes out here but i I never had encountered them so i never really felt the need to mess with them but now i've got now on a mission you got to keep mama happy yeah yeah so you know and i'd hear heard my buddies talk about oh yeah you can you know bunch of us will get in the back of a pickup truck and get some meat scraps and put them out in the field and turn on a rabbit distress call man there'll be 20 or 30 coats come running in so <laughs> that's kind of what i expected because nobody around here really knew about it and it didn't take me long to figure out that wasn't working uh social media was first picking up what do you think is this say, but, hey, is this
0: like probably mid-2000s early 2000s what, what are you thinking
1: um yeah it was around 2008 2009 okay so i met Another mutual friend of ours, Joe Rydell. You know, he grew Joe grew up in South Dakota. He'd moved here, was a fisheries biologist here. He responded to me on social media. So he was like, Yeah, man, I've, I've been looking for somebody to hunt with. Again, we real quickly learned that the techniques that he'd done his whole life in South Dakota, because of our terrain here, didn't work. And we weren't, you know, we weren't having success. So that led us to reach out to some other guys. And four of us got together for a Sunday afternoon to have a conversation. And and out of that grew the Georgia Predator Hunt Association, uh, which is a a 501c nonprofit organization that we started up just to try to give a common voice for guys to all the research materials we could find were either focused, you know, and you're in the Midwest where you're at, Texas, you know, didn't really apply to Eastern hunting. So we just, we started this organization to try to give a collective voice for people that were hunting, to share what was working, what what, wasn't their successes, so we could all try to learn together. And and through that, we started our first competition. We started doing, you know, trade shows, getting out and engaging people. That was when we contacted you because the first opportunity we had to do a seminar, none of us knew what we were talking about. (laughs) So, you know, we looked out to see who the pro was. Yeah, yeah. You you were gracious enough to come down and help us with that, and and you know, I think that has played into growing this industry because let's face it, it is an industry now. Uh, There's so look at all the products and everything that are geared toward the predator market across the entire
0: country. Oh, you bet.
1: Uh, It's one of the fastest growing segments. So. Just like I said, awareness of it. And, and the what I learned very quickly, I, I haven't hunted a turkey in probably 10 or 12 years, but I used to live for turkey hunting. That was just like the ultimate challenge to me. People ask me why I don't turkey hunt anymore because I'm just, it's no longer a challenge. You know, yeah, every, yeah. I, mean, I can't tell you the thousands of coyotes I've been involved in calling and killing that me, other people that I've just been associated to Every time I see one, man, my heart races. I mean, I'm still getting just as gassed and pumped up as I did the first one that came in. And that's, you know, that's the excitement for me.
0: So I always ask everybody, I've started this here, the last handful of podcasts, tell me the story of your first coyote you ever killed. Got to hear it.
1: First coyote ever killed back then we were, um, we were hunting red lights. So, you know, there's a degree of challenge that comes along with that. And again, just lack of research on my part or whatever it was, I really didn't know what to expect. And we've been calling and, you know, with, you, with the lights, you're kind of scanning around and, and all of a sudden I've got a coat 30 yards in front of me staring right at me and I froze <laughs> because number one, I was trying to make sure that that was actually a coyote because I really wasn't sure in detail what a coyote looked like. And then I'm like, Holy shit. What do I do? So, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a a comedy to say the least.
0: Uh, Did you at least kill it in the first shot? That's what I got to know. Okay, good,
1: good. I've been raised my whole life. Marksmanship is key handling a gun properly. So yeah, once I'd made the decision to pull the trigger, I was good, but it, uh, yeah, it was, like I said, it was just almost comical. And then, but then I was, you know, I was bit. I was bit by the bug then, and uh, you know we continued to hunt with lights for a little while. And next thing you know, I'm borrowing money against my pickup truck to buy night vision. I actually bought my first thermal device then. Um, this was before thermal riflescopes and stuff were a commercial product. Uh, I grew up in the electrical industry, so we used thermal cameras to check electrical panels, motor bearings, and stuff like that. Uh, so I got permission to borrow the camera to take a hunt with me one weekend, just to think, I mean, just see what it would do. And I had no idea, even as good a night vision equipment as we'd grown into, what we were really missing. So it, like I said, growing through it, um, even getting better technology and everything, like I said, the excitement was still the same when I got that first initial shock of, oh, my God, here's this thing in my sights. What do I do? <laughs>
0: so you've been out hunting with me out here in nebraska you know um so you you've had a chance to hunt western coyotes i guess what do you think is the biggest difference i mean i hear this from a lot of guys and i've hunted obviously where you're at i've hunted some other what i would consider midwest or eastern states where the train is nothing like what we hunt out here in the west Um, but i do hear that a lot that it's just a different game i mean what do you think what do you think is the biggest reasons behind that or what are the biggest challenges um you know between the two styles of hunting
1: for me it's a a very good question and i am by nature a research hound if i get involved in something that first experience i wasn't prepared but after that i said matt i'm going to learn everything i can about this thing that i'm pursuing because to me how can you how can you outsmart your your enemy or your opponent or, or whatever it is you're pursuing if you don't know it
0: oh that's huge yeah
1: so i spent a lot of time trying to learn about this animal and like i said I've, I've fortunately tried to follow the people here that have done these studies the university guys we had a, a, a u.s government trapper located in our area that was doing a, a, some tracking information I, I tried to communicate with as many people as i could and what we found here obviously the coyote is an opportunistic feeder that's that's their nature that they did a study, one of the early studies they did here is 60% of the coyotes that responded to a call that were killed, they checked their stomachs, and their stomachs were over half full. So they didn't necessarily respond to a call out of hunger because their stomachs were over half full. It was the opportunity to get an easy meal, and here I think our terrain and the abundance of food. Lends more to that, whereas in you guys' area, like in the sand hills, where you don't have, you know, you don't have wheat fields out there that you have, you know, hundreds of mice running around in, they, they, their opportunities at food are a little bit different. Yep. So yep. I think there you get responses out of true hunger, out of true, oh my God, I, I, that's, that's a meal, I got to go get it. Um, because the difference, the reason I say that is, you know, I know one time we were hunting with you, you know, we called a coyote into 30 yards and shotgunned it. And we drove to where we first saw it and it was close to a mile.
0: Oh yeah. Coyotes yeah, big, come from big a long country. way away. Yep.
1: Here it's not so much the case. They're so much more cautious as to when they hear a sound or, or something catches their attention. They're a little more hesitant to check everything out before they're actually going to come out, commit to a come to approach it. But well, I those co- and is. your coyotes
0: just have cover right i mean that's a problem like you you were talking about that stand we made in the sand hills. i mean other than four inch tall grass on rolling hills there's no cover you know so coyotes i feel are just generally used to traveling a long ways to find food and whatnot okay. obviously in your country i mean you got wood lines and creek bottoms and little small acre open fields you know but small you know coyotes i i feel like they're able to use the cover all the time. They don't have to step out in the openness if they don't have to. Um, Yeah, and I think they're more concentrated too, right? I would think their territories are probably a little smaller just because there is more ample food sources and they don't need to travel as far. Would you think exactly? that'd be correct?
1: Yeah, and the the last, there was a study done two years ago that resident codes. Now, the other thing that came out of this study is that 40% of the coyote population in Georgia are transient. They're just roamers.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think that's about, Um, I would say that's probably everywhere,
1: but not even considering the transient population numbers, they're talking about that 60% that are classified as residents, resident coyotes that may claim, you know, anywhere from a four to a 10 mile square, 10 square mile area is their territory. Um, They estimate some areas here that we've got as many as two to five coyotes per square mile. There's areas that they're that densely populated. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get that. that That's a coyote hunting
0: dream right there, man.
1: It is. (laughs) If they would just respond the way yours do.
0: (laughs) We haven't been playing the secret sound. That's why.
1: That's what it is. I got to find, (laughs) I got to find the right juice. (laughs) Uh,
0: You know, tactic. I, this is, this is a conversation I've had many times because I get, you know you're the first guy i've had on the podcast that's really what i consider an eastern coyote hunter um and and i get this conversation a lot as as far as you know our coyotes are different than your coyotes and i don't know you know i haven't hunted eastern coyotes enough to know but it seems to me i almost wonder sometimes i feel that that's maybe an excuse if that makes sense like you know they yeah. see how effective we are out here and they're not as effective, but maybe they're just not a, a, an accomplished coyote hunter quite yet. Maybe they haven't learned all the little things and maybe that's not why they're not killing coyotes the way they should be. And they want to blame it on that. You know what I'm saying? But it seems to me like wherever I've hunted coyotes, you know, there's really two big things uh, to me. A coyote's always a coyote. It's just the matter of how that coyote uses the train and the vegetation and, you know, the landscape around them. Would you agree that that's kind of similar, the, the way that they're using it there? It's not that they're a whole different type of animal. It's just that they're, they've adapted to that area, you know, and you have to mold those those basic fundamentals of coyote hunting to fit the terrain and to fit the land access. Obviously, that's a huge deal in your part. You don't have 40,000-acre ranches like we have out west. You don't have million acres of public land, you know, your small little acreages here and there with dirt roads going every which way Um, you know would you see that's probably the biggest thing is just adapting those common skill sets to where you're at
1: it is and the other thing here is and this is tough to say I'm, I'm just one of those guys I don't mean to insult anybody I'm just brutally honest so many guys that we see especially here are you know, they hear about this coyote hunting thing, and instead of taking the time to do a little bit of research, they think, oh, just like I did in the beginning, all I got to do is go out and buy a squawker box and put it out there, and I'm, you know, I'm going to kill a hundred of these things. And one of the biggest things I've noticed here is uh, our coyotes are very well educated. And when you yeah, mix that's everywhere all of that now. together, <laughs> when you when you take that. You know, not only do you, do they have, like you said, you have to terrain that you have to deal with, and, and you you mentioned, you know, like the vegetation and and, and uh, creek bottoms, all that kind of stuff. But also our terrain, you know, there there's a lot of, you know, a lot of your guys' land is flat. You can look out across an 800 acre field, and it'll look flat as it can be. But what you don't see is that three foot little ditch running through the middle of it. Yep. That these guys have learned to travel in. So, when you get stuff like that, um, they're playing that to their advantage too. But yeah, it, it's kind of a combination of all of it. Uh, but we do have a lot of guys out here that just, you know, it, it's the hot, popular thing to do. So they want to run out there and try it. And we've really had the, the tactics that we used five or six years ago, we've had to completely change our approach. Because things we had success at so long, all of a sudden now you can tell the coyotes you're educated to it by, the, by the, their mannerisms and the way they act.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a challenge everybody's facing. I mean, it's just uh, across the board. I think if you talk to somebody in Idaho or Arizona or Georgia, you know, I think it's, it's just a challenge anywhere you go. I mean, as the more popular coyote hunting gets, there's going to be more guys out there. You still have the same amount of land. You know, that isn't changing you know, but we have more guys now out hunting that land and, you know, and unfortunately guys are learning. This is a, this is a sport that takes trial and error and getting out and doing it. So, you know, there are guys that are starting out that are going to educate coyotes that are going to mess things up. And that's just part of the deal. And you're right, you know, being adaptable and being able to, you know, look at different things and not get stuck in your ways of, you know, what worked the last three years. If it isn't working now, okay, you know maybe we need to change up a little bit. We need to change our tactics a little bit, and uh, you know continue to you know kill the coyotes like we were used to doing.
1: And and one of the, the the biggest things that that we were all taught, you know, we we went through a period of time where our contest would run, you know, we would start Friday night and run through lunchtime on Sunday, and our record for a long time was eight coyotes, and all of a sudden we had two guys that. Because our contest is confined to the state of Georgia. We had a couple of guys from Virginia, from Virginia wanted to come down. They gained access to some land down here and you know they were hunting inside the state of Georgia, so it was good. All of a sudden they turn up 16 codes. And everybody was like, Oh my God, they're cheating. They're doing this, they're doing <laughs> that. You know, and, and you know, we we modeled your contest where we used the rep system, you know, and and I put some of my most trusted guys with them. Not so much to watch them, but to give credibility to them. Because I'd heard about these guys. I knew they were good. But what we learned from them that's a little bit different, too, I know the times I've hunted with you guys that, you know, you're always waiting on the coyote to get as close as it can. What these guys taught us is when you see it, you better kill it. So these guys, you know, showed us that we need to get better at our marksmanship. You know, we're not going to get a hundred yard shot. You better get proficient at two or 300 yards. And that has helped us overcome some of the issues where we have educated coyotes out here now, because that's how we know they've been messed with before. If all of a sudden they'll come out and then they'll hold up out there at that two, 300 yard mark. And you can't, I don't care what you do. You can't get them to come any closer. You know, we've, we've questioned, is that a territorial boundary or what it is? But we reached the point that it doesn't matter what it is. If we can get, what we had to do was adapt ourselves to be able to make that shot. If that's where they're going to hang up, that's fine. Instead of us trying to outsmart you to make you come closer, we're going to kill you where you stand. Yeah. So again, along with that came upgrading our weapons some, and it came for us just having to do our due diligence and spend some time and practice and know our equipment and be comfortable that we could take those shots.
0: You know, that's a, I think that's a common denominator wherever you're at you know, and I think that's, you know, with, with smart coyotes hanging up out, out in the openness of, of the West, those coyotes usually make a big circle because the, the train is open. You know, you'll see those coyotes make a two, three, 400 yard circle so they can get to the downwind where in your country for that coyote that popped out in the tree line to get to the downwind, heck, he'd have to cut through trees and brush and stuff, you know? So I think that's, they they don't go for the wind they just kind of almost pop out and look and be like yeah i'm i'm good i'm gonna you know maybe give you a look for a second and then i'm gonna you know make my way back into the brush and you'll never see them again you know exactly you know one thing one thing too i i find interesting is you look at the the history of coyote hunting and and it's built off of mentorship i think a lot you know coyote hunters most coyote hunters have gotten Good at killing coyotes because they were taught by somebody else. I feel you know very few guys have l- have learned from just on their own. Well, out west, obviously, coyote hunting, calling coyotes, has been something that's probably been going now. I don't know, hundred years, especially you know parts of Texas and stuff. It's just been part of the culture, so you have multiple generations of coyote hunters. <clears throat> In the eastern part of the United States, you know you're looking at maybe one generation of coyote callers at this point, right? So yeah the guy there's been nobody yet to teach. I mean, you guys are all going to be the first generation that are going to be teaching your kids and stuff, which are going to be the second generation of coyote hunters where in the West, you know, we might be on fourth, fifth generation of, of coyote hunters teaching others, if that makes sense. So I feel like too, there's a thing about Eastern coyote hunting where the only way that a lot of these guys have, have learned coyote hunting is from watching videos and things like that. Um, because that's one of the main resources for them to go. Well, obviously a lot of these, a lot of these videos are from where out West. Right. And, and they see those tactics that the West guys are using. And then they look at the East and they say, well, well, we need to set up on this little four acre field and watch them come running across the wide open. Right. But this four acre field surrounded by timber or brush, um, and they just don't realize that they're expecting the coyotes to come running across the open. Like they saw on the video of us, Western hunters, not really understanding the core principles underneath that of of why that coyote out west came running it just because it wasn't because it wanted to come running across the open it's just because they're used to crossing openness all the time you know so i feel like you know that was a, a thing too i think like you talked about the guys that had come down and killed 16 all of a sudden you know it's like they they were putting probably more coyotes in front of them you know in the previous three years than anybody else and were learning faster would you agree of kind of
1: I intentionally, again, did uh, when I when we were you know putting the reps with the guys, you know, I, I, typically we did the, the blind draw on that. But this was one of those times, like I said, to protect the integrity of a new group coming in. Um, I put some guys that had been with some of the other winners in the past. And they have all told me that it was not that these the, the new guys coming in, the Virginia guys coming in saw more codes, they just killed everything they saw. Yeah, yeah. The teams before that would turn in six or seven or eight would see the same 15 to 25 codes. you know? Yeah, yeah. But they would miss them too. <laughs> and you would have, you know, not calling names, but there was one team that the first Friday night, they had called in 13 coats and had not killed any. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they decided to check their guns and at 100 yards – you know, they were – they couldn't have hit the hood of a truck, let alone hit a coat. They would never sighted their guns before the contest started. So we also – that's where I said we saw that these guys were seeing a similar amount of coats. They just weren't prepared. And – but after that, after, you know, these guys and, – and to these guys' credit, they were very helpful. When we went to the weigh-in, obviously people were coming and talking to them they shared their knowledge. I mean, they they exposed themselves and told everything they did because they wanted to help grow the sport.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's really um, good.
1: So once they told everybody what their keys were, all of a sudden you've got guys that are paying you know attention, making sure their guns are on, doing the right things, increasing their comfort, the shooting distance. You know where they're comfortable to shoot at, and then we saw the whole group's numbers start growing. So
0: you know, I just saw some numbers from the the Eastern contest it was in the thirties that won it. Correct. I mean, there were a couple, I yeah. think two or three teams that all killed in the thirties of coyotes, Yep. which to me, I mean, that's, I've been in some coyote rich areas and to kill 30 coyotes in a couple nights, or 30 plus coyotes in a night, it's, I'm telling you, you gotta, you, you gotta have coyote rich densities. So for yeah. me, I'm like, wow, you know, I, I always feel like some of the most coyote rich dense areas should be in the Eastern part of the United States. Just the way that the tr- The train lays, like you said, the food sources, you know, it's harder to control the coyote population in the east versus west. You know, out here we have government trappers, aerial gunning. Um, It's The trappers are a lot more successful because they're not dealing with the population base, you know, every house, every quarter mile kind of a deal and people's dogs and things. So I feel like, you know, our population kind of has just been a little roller coaster over the last 20, 30 years where in the east it's just been a steady incline. Like you said, you know, we're seeing more coyotes now than what you ever have so i th- i think you guys are in for some just fantastic coyote opportunities in your part of the world especially as coyote hunters get better in your part of the world you know just as they get more and more experience um and the generations start you know passing information down and and things like that
1: you're right i mean and that, like i said there's you know, now where are there were, like i said when we started the gpha there were really four of us that really didn't know the information but we were kind of trying to be information collection point and sharing that out you know now you've probably got a hundred guys in the state that are doing that that you know really have a love for the, the sport and they're trying to they're competitive I mean let's face it us men by nature <laughs>
0: oh yeah
1: you know we graduate out of high school and we can't play football and baseball or basketball anymore we're going to find something to compete at it's just oh yeah your blood, your blood. <laughs> but these guys are also wanting to make us all better and they really do I mean there's such a That's what I've always liked about the sport since I've been in it is the camaraderie. You know, the other thing that I feel like that our contest did was, you know, even using the rep process, a lot of people were hesitant to it about having some stranger come and go with them. But, you know, they also learned, too, that some of them made lifelong friendships, you know, in the early stages of the contest, we saw a guy that was, you know, obviously the reps were people that wanted to learn about it, wanted to do it. Had, you know, wanted to learn from somebody that knew. So, you know, we had a guy that had never hunted before in his life, never hunted anything, served as a rep for a team that won that year. The next year he got his own team and started, and they didn't win, but they were competitive because they he had come and done the research and learned. Instead of getting out there and reinventing the wheel, he took advantage of the resources he had, and the guys he hunted with poured into him and taught him, so now we had another good coyote hunter out there in the state because you know, ultimately our goal here is to try to help control the population because we do see the other studies that we've seen are, are, deer hunting is a huge, especially the area that I live in, but statewide is a huge economical impact in the state of Georgia. And we're starting to see the effect that coyotes are having on the deer population declining, turkey population, all of our wildlife and like i said there's there's university studies backing that up so we're all trying to get better not only but so that we continue to have a sport to participate in but we're also helping to benefit the other species as well
0: one question i've always had is you know obviously out in our neck of the woods day hunting has been a staple obviously now with thermal the popularity of thermal we have more and more guys switching over to night hunting even out west. You know, it seems like where you're at though, night hunting has always been primarily the way it way it goes, right? Yeah. Why is it part. why what do you think it what do you think has been the main reason why guys haven't given the day hunting a shot or a fair crack?
1: I think it's inherently you think that you do have some tactical advantages at night, obviously. Because just like we can't see as well, neither can the coyote, they still have their other senses to depend on but and you can get a visual advantage that obviously helps i can tell you for me when i first started hunting them um it was a time thing you know i, I can tell you many times where you know my partner and i at the time would friday night you know we would come home spend time with our families go out to eat do whatever we were going to do when the wife and kids went to bed we'd meet up at 11 30 and we'd hunt till daybreak
0: yeah, yeah that's
1: when we had time to hunt You know, it was hard to do it in the daytime because we were working or or, or the kids had stuff going on. That was what attracted us to night hunting. But Joe came down again about four years ago to visit some family and went out and made some daytime sets. And he said, he told me right then, he said, man, you need to switch over. (laughs) Because so many people are typically a coyote is going to be, by research, more active And more feeds more at night. But now they've got so much pressure on them. He said, Man, I've never had coyotes respond in the daytime like I did here. So I think we're starting to see a switch that the coyotes are even, they're an adaptive animal. We've already established that, you know, and that they're starting to learn most of the pressures at night. And we're starting to see them more active in the daytime.
0: Uh, You know, I think it's a tactical thing too. I mean, do you think guys that are just learning coyote hunting, it's harder for them tactically to figure out a plan to attack the coyotes in the daytime, knowing that you probably have to get down in there where the coyotes are at. Obviously, the coyotes in the daytime aren't running across the open fields, which you're hoping for at night, obviously, um, yeah. where you have a little more visibility. Is it, do you think it's more of a tactical thing where they're just like, wow, you know, I don't want to say they, they think it's impossible to call in coyotes in the day, but it almost is against kind of what they, what they know and how they know how to hunt coyotes.
1: I think it's that, uh, uh, but some of it's more the easy button. I think it, I think it's just because it's easier at night. They want to do it at night.
0: Well, yeah, Um, I mean, we want this to be successful. I mean, that's what makes it fun is is seeing some coyotes and shooting some coyotes, you know, and if obviously you're grinding it out during the day, you know, down in the thick stuff, you know, um, where you can't see and not really knowing what's going on, you know, you know, your success might not be as great. You know, I can see that for sure.
1: Well, another thing too here is because we're hunting such tighter pockets, like you said, you may only have a, a a five to ten acre open. And a lot of times, you know, we've seen that that coyote's laying in the field out there. And if you try to approach that set in the daytime, they'll have seen you and slipped out before you ever know it.
0: Yeah, welcome to Western hunting, huh?
1: Yeah, a lot of times <laughs> at night we go there and cut the call on and a coyote stands up out in the middle of the field. Yeah, yeah. Just had it happened to us about a month ago. I walked out and set the call back and started walking back. My partner starts lip squeaking at me. So I flip my thermal up there and look at him, and he's giving me the down signal. So, you know, I hit the ground, and that's exactly what had happened. There was a coyote out there in the field mousing. I didn't see it when I was walking out and put the call out, and it just happened to be walking, crossing the field 50 yards behind where I was walking back to where we were set up at. (laughs) Never called. I didn't know he was there and he didn't know I was there. He just happened to be in the field. So that, that's another issue here is those tighter pockets increase the opportunity for that a lot more that they can see you long before you see them.
0: Yeah. That's what we deal with yeah. out West all the time, man. That's our, that's one of our biggest, that's what a lot of people that have never hunted out West, you know, they watch the videos and they see, wow, look how far these coyotes come. Well, visibility is always a two way street. And, you know, that's one of our biggest challenges is getting into a stand without the coyote that we're hoping to call in, knowing that we're there, you know, and that's, I love it when I go hunt with Rick down in Eastern Kansas, even though a lot of people don't consider Eastern Kansas, Eastern coyote hunting from what I've known and what I've been in Georgia, the terrain is very, very similar as far as, as dirt roads, almost every mile, you got little small acreages of plowed fields, but then you got these thick creek bottoms and brush lines and grass you know, so your visibility is really limited, but I've always loved the fact that it's just easy to get into where you're going to make your stand a lot of times, um, you know, cause you do have that cover and things like that. But uh, uh, you know, the challenge of you know using those small areas and, and finding coyotes is, is where it's at.
1: Yeah. It, it's definitely exciting either way. I mean, even as much as we hunt them here, I'll tell people all the time, you haven't lived till you go out west and hunt them because it is <laughs> different, different experience altogether. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when you're sitting on a stand, you can see seven, 800 yards. You know, obviously, it's, it's not a straight shot. There's some roll out of the train, but you can see that far. You know, you guys, you look 100 yards across, and you're just looking at a wood line, you know. You can't exactly. see. Out here, you're seeing you're seeing hills a mile, three miles away. Um, you know, it's almost like visual overload for a lot of guys that have never done that. And they, I'm, I just have to tell people, hey, don't get caught up looking off at the senior. I said, keep your, keep your focus a couple hundred yards out, man. I said, because uh, they're going to come. They're going to come fast, and we need to be able to spot them. so so into the night hunting thing a little bit well let's back up a little bit so if somebody was listening to this and they're from Georgia or even from some southeast parts of the country any any specific tips um that you'd maybe pass down to them you know somebody that's kind of getting started in that area maybe just a few things kind of off that that kind of you know ring a bell right now that would be good information to pass along to them
1: the first thing i would say is Allude back to know your weapon. Spend a little time, practice, know that if you get a shot, you're ready to take it. And and I think that's one of the biggest areas that guys don't spend enough time on. You know, the, the old, like you talk about generations of change, and that's the way deer hunting was here. You know, it, it's like a, a rite of passage. And the rule of thumb here is if you can hit a pie plate at 100 yards, you can kill a deer. Well, a, a pie plate is an, a coyote's <laughs> entire torso
0: yeah yeah
1: so you're on the edge of the pie plate you just missed yeah so little rules of thumb like that you have to become a little bit more accurate shooter so i would definitely tell you to get familiar with your weapon the other thing is if you're going to try hunting at night so much of what you do whatever tool or device you're using is done by feel you can't look and find the button you can't look and find the safety of the switch you got to know where it's at by touch um the second thing is you still have to play the wind. You know, so many guys don't check the wind because they think cover of darkness has them completely concealed. But while a coyote, all, all of us coach senses are very keen, their smell is a large part of their, you know, their protective resource. So I tell guys to take something, whatever it is, a windicator, whatever it is, something that you can tell what direction the wind is blowing in because terrain can change that too. If you're driving into a stand across an open field, you may have the wind out of the east, but you're going back there to hunt a little pocket that's five acres. Those trees can redirect that wind. They can make it circle. They're making it switch. So you got to know what the wind's doing too. Um, And the third thing is know your terrain. Do a little bit of scouting ahead of time so that you know at nighttime with the best night optic in the world, you can't see those little draws in the field. You can't see those little irrigation ditches and stuff. In the daytime, if you know it's there, you know to focus on it. But if you don't know it's there, a lot of times that can, that can be your demise.
0: Yeah. In my, you know, you've night hunt way more than I do. <clears throat> the few times I've done it, you know, we filmed a couple last stand episodes doing it, you know, in Kansas with Rick. And, you know, that's the, to me, that's always been the challenge. Because you, like you said, I can walk into a day stand that I've never seen before. And I can evaluate the train. I can evaluate the micro train around us. And I can find a spot that fast. But at night, you're right. You can't see all that. And you set up before you know it, you see a coyote. And then all of a sudden it gets to 80 yards, hundred yards and it just disappears. And you're like, what happened? You know, exactly. one little three foot dip out there, a little terrace or something. And you're like, and then before you know it, he's right on you. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge is knowing, knowing exactly where you're going to set up with the night stuff.
1: Well, and one of the things too, when we're talking about the popularity and, and, uh, you talked about the differences in the West and the East. Um, the other thing is, and, and and get on your hands and knees tonight, say your prayers and, and thank the good Lord that you don't have hogs. <laughs> uh, and that's what leads a lot of guys into coyote hunting is they're already out there. They've already got the equipment. They're out there trying to help the farmer control the pigs. And it leads them into while they're there or they see coyotes and then they want to start pursuing them as well. So I, I, fa- I left that out earlier when we were talking about, you know, the growth of the sport and some of the differences is that's another exposure point here that can get guys. They see the coyotes, and, again, you know, it's different from a pig. You know, you, you, a lot of times we can walk within 50 yards of a group of pigs before we ever start shooting them, but you can't think that a coyote's going to be that way. So, you, again, you have to educate yourself about it and know the differences to be successful at it. But um, it's the same thing with the pigs, too. That same spot that can give you away with a coyote can, you know, a pig can get in that same race
0: and, and disappear. Oh, yeah. um, you know, you talked about visibility real quick. You know, obviously, pigs don't see well. Coyotes still seeing pretty good at night. When you're setting up, what this has been a challenge we've faced, trying to figure out exactly when we can get away. Because at night, I feel like you can get away with more as far as your setup go. You know what? versus a daytime setup where we're trying to tuck into the cover and try to, you know, break up our outline and do that kind of stuff. You know, when it comes to the, the amount of moonlight um, and things like that, are you still trying to tuck into tree lines and shadows or are you going out and just setting up tripods in the kind of the middle of those fields and just letting the moonlight bounce off you? What, what are you typically looking for? For me? Yeah.
1: Number one, because that's what I learned from you guys um, is to always break your silhouette um but it's funny because different groups here have different approach two guys i was talking about before they'll find the highest point in the field and literally drive the truck out there to the highest point of the field and get out and set up but if a coyote shows itself at 550 yards they kill it so they don't have to take any of that stuff into play they're prepared to to stretch out and kill him when they see him. but for us and for what i tell people is you do have to keep that conscious because. You know, I always tell people, walk out in the field and look back. If you finish a set and you didn't see anything, walk out and look back at where you were standing. Because then you see what a coyote would see. Oh, yeah. You may have had one slip in and silhouette you, even though it's dark. You know, here, even on a quarter moon night, there's nights that it can be really, really bright. So you still have to worry about having that some type of backdrop or something so that you don't get silhouetted against the skyline.
0: Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I want to take a second to talk to you a little bit about crypt deck camouflage. Now us as coyote hunters, we are extremely rough on stuff and our clothing lineup is is no exception. Whether it's climbing fences and getting things snagged up, uh, crawling around on our knees, trying to get in position to shoot a coyote, or just having to deal with the, the ever-changing weather conditions. you know, I want a, a line of camouflage that's going to allow me to, to modify with the changing weather, as well as hold up to the abuse I'm going to put it through. And that's what the offers. Now, CrypTech took what they learned in the most hostile combat environments and combined that knowledge with proven tactical gear concepts, tested it with top military professionals and hunters, and then customized every aspect to perform in all potential backcountry scenarios. And that's exactly what I want. So if you're in the market for a new line of camouflage this coming season, Visit cryptech.com and see what they have to offer. Now, I'm going to be running the Highlander pattern. They have a new pattern coming out in 2022 I'm excited to see. And, of course, my favorite time to shoot coyotes is in the snow. So be sure and check out their overwhite patterns they offer as well. So visit cryptech.com to see what they have to offer. Now back to the podcast. So let's move into the night hunt. last piece I want to talk with you about is the thermal side. You know, you actually you sell a line of thermals called Full Moon, full moon Optics. Um, I actually run one of the scopes. I was using it there, uh, you know, filming for the last stand episode. So we've we've talked about thermal hunting on multiple episodes here, but I've never had anybody with your knowledge base of the specs, the, the technical aspects of thermal, you know? So if guys are looking to buy thermal, what do all the numbers mean? And that's what I really want to talk to you a little bit about is, is, you know, talk a little bit about your line of thermals and then let's talk about you know, what all those numbers mean? Because I, I don't even know what they mean.
1: Well, the, the, the biggest thing about thermal is uh, understanding how it works. You know, when, when you look at, let's say, a cathode tube night vision scope, okay, essentially what you have is a set of lenses and you have an intensifier to you that it's going to take whatever light is available and amplify that. Okay, and you have different grades of it. You had generation one, generation two, generation two plus, generation three. What the generations meant there was how much light it could amplify. It was basically as the technology, we started with the old starlight scope back in Vietnam that you know you could see about 50 yards with. But as technology advanced, the distances that you could see increased. The one limitation that you had with, and still have with cathode night vision is you can't amplify that image above six power magnification because it distorts the image. And throughout the evolution of night vision, they've never been able to overcome that. That's just inherent to that technology. Well, thermal is a whole different game. There's really four main components that create the thermal image that you see. First of all, you have to have your lens, whereas even on like a night vision optic, we're dealing with just a clear lens just as you would in a daytime scope because all we're doing is trying to see an image. Now you have to have an image that has the ability to gain heat. Germanium is the, the most common, the most popular earth element in the lens that gives it the ability to even be able to recognize that heat signal. Well, then you have a, you have your thermal detector in your thermal core. All right, so they they basically, the the thermal detector picks up the heat image. It then communicates it to a processor that takes that image and translates it. And then it's going to project it onto essentially a TV screen. So you're no longer seeing a live image like you would through a daytime optic or through even a night vision optic. Now you're seeing a replicated image. Well, like any multi-component, machine all of those components have to work together back to the night vision days you know everybody automatically thought that gen 3 was better than gen 2 plus but we proved that different because when you said if you said i have a gen 2 or a gen 3 scope that was about as broad as saying whether you drive a car or you drive a truck okay so when you decide the category you're in the, 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 qual- the, the quality of the product and the abilities that it had, when you just talk about trucks are very expansive. They're still trucks, but some have a lot more features and functions and capabilities. Well, the same thing correlates into thermal. It goes to how well the components work together. So, so many people think automatically that a 640 is better than a 384. That's not true. My best analogy to people is to think back to something we all know, and that is a TV. Let's talk about television and videos. If let's say that our our 384 core is a 1080p Blu-ray disc, okay, and a 640 it would be like a 4K disc. Okay. So with the 384, I have the ability to produce a 1080 image. With a 640, I have the ability to produce a 4K image. Which one's better? Obviously the oh, 4K. Have 4K. Yeah. Okay. But what if I take that 1080 image and display it onto a 1080p TV? Take that 4K image and project it onto a 720 TV. Which where do I have the better image?
0: I don't know. You have a 10 1080 image. The, the yeah. 1080 on a
1: 1080 screen is going to give me a better image than a 4K on a 720. It's the same thing here. In thermal, your components have to match, your processor has to match the display screen in its capabilities. And um, Pulsar found that out early on when they went from their 384, their XQ line was their 384 product. When they went to the XP line, they upgraded their thermal processor, which is the lowest cost of the four functions between the lens, the thermal detector, the processor, and the screen. The thermal detector is the cheapest part of it. Well, they upgraded to a 640 detector, but they didn't upgrade their display screen. And their image quality actually receded a little bit. Their, their 384 product was clearer than the 640 was. Huh. So they, they had to make some adjustments there to overcome that. It's You run into the same thing when you get into... Let's go back to televisions again. You know, you can go to Walmart and they sell a 4K TV in there, or you can go to, you know, whatever brand name it is, Sensei, Huawei, whoever off-brand TV it is, it's a 4K TV. But you can go to a TV specialty shop and buy a higher-end brand, like a high-end Sony or a high-end Samsung, and even though they're both 4K, there's a noticeable difference in the image that you see on but they're both 4k. Now, the one you buy at Walmart's $400, the one that the high end Samsung or Sony you buy is $2,000. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because of the cost of the components. Uh, Same thing happens in thermal. Now, one of the things that does happen when you go from a 384 to a 640, the one thing that you give up is roughly 50% magnification. Okay. So when you're looking at your optic, you have to think about, obviously there's a lot of things that come into play. Remember I said you're out in the field and you're having to make these adjustments by feel. Oh yeah. So you've got your, you're, you have, you have to focus your image. You may want to make it brighter, dimmer. There's, there's four variables that can affect the picture you're looking at from an adjustability standpoint. So there's all these things that you want to, move and adjust um so you have to decide what of those variables is most important and for most for me it's zoom you know i don't shoot in an animal i t- try to shoot at a spot on an animal so i need to be closer in i need to have a more zoomed image of, of to know where i'm shooting oh yeah i don't just want to shoot at the whole body um so that was one of the trade-offs of going from a 384 to a 640. It's one of the reasons that I have not taken our product there before. Another analogy, drag racing. You know, Before, if you had a big block, man, you were the baddest thing on the track and nobody could outrun you. But you go to the track now and there's a little four-cylinder engines out there that are smoking the big blocks. Because what those guys are doing is instead of just creating more horsepower, The 4 cylinder guys are maximizing what they have. They're getting all they can get out of it. So they're smaller, they're lighter. There's so many advantages to it. But what they're doing is maximizing what they have available. And that's what we've tried to do with our product. That's why we have not made the jump to 640 yet, because we knew the sacrifice was going to be magnification. I never intended to be in the thermal business. (laughs) I mean, it really, truly happened – totally by accident. Um, I I had a longstanding relationship with a friend of mine and a manufacturer that made my night vision equipment for for a long time. And I had a long, I had a lot of history with thermal because like I said, I was using it before it ever became a hunting product. Well, they asked me to help them design a, a, a rifle scope from a hunter's perspective. You know, you can put all the functions and features that you want on it, but to me, a lot of them are useless. I, you know, I want the things that are going to help me hunt. I don't need all, you know, I don't need an inclinometer and a compass and all this other stuff. I, I need the functions that are going to help me be a better coyote hunter. So when we did this, my goal at that time, there were four players in the market. We've had our product. I had my first thermoscope at SHOT Show five years ago. Now, what I don't have is a million dollars to go out there and market it. But at that time, you, on the commercial market, you had ATN. Back then, it was AR Defense, which is now Trigicon. Um, Pulsar was just coming on the scene. Excuse me, you had FLIR, and you had us. Pulsar was just starting to come on the scene, but they really weren't out there yet. So there were four manufacturers of thermal product. Um, my goal at that time was to give Trigicon quality at say an ATN price. Now, when Pulsar came on the scene, it was we want Trijicon quality to Pulsar price because Pulsar came in, man, they came in and did a great job of capturing their segment of the market. We just want to give as much function and features as we can to give you the best value for your dollar. So yeah, we're still a 384 core, but if you take, Let's say you take one of my 384 scopes and you put it side by side with a Trigicon or an Envision Halo. Two of the higher end products now. When you first look through the view screen, those two brands are going to be better than us. But you also have to consider I'm at 3.5 magnification. They're at 1.7. So if we're going to compare apples to apples, you have to zoom them one level to put us both at 3.5. So now... They've zoomed to their mid-level and clarity goes down. All of a sudden, my image is better than theirs when we get apples for apples.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: The one thing we've been able to do is when you zoom our product to a large degree, you can focus it back in. Whereas when they zoom, it's tough to focus it. Mine, when you go to the first level of zoom, you're not going to get back to the clarity of your base magnification. That's just the inherent... That's the issue with zooming any image. If you take a daytime scope and start zooming it, you're going to have to refocus it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: So you're not going to get back to what your base clarity is, but I can get you pretty close to it. So components are components. It's how you can tweak those things, and it's the software and how you can get the most out of it that make the difference. And that's what we try to focus on.
0: So if somebody's reading the spec sheet on a thermal, they don't actually they're going to order it online they're going to do something like that and they're reading the spec sheet they're going to see either a 384 or a 640 correct mm-hmm. how do they know as far as the image display where where does that show up on a spec sheet so they can actually see okay like you talked about is this a 4k image going onto a 720 screen or is this a you know 1080 going onto a 1080 kind of a deal
1: it, it will list that one of the variable that it lists down would be your display
0: and will and, that have some it, numbers it, with it to, to kind of give them does. an idea
1: it can range from a, a 600 up to there's actually a 1400 i can't remember the exact numbers on the 1400 but it's going to be a, a, a magnification number it's going to be a let's say it's going to be like a, a, a 1224 by 980 just throwing a number out there okay so it's going to be a comparison of length and width it's going to be pixel count by length and width.
0: And they're so looking for lo- the larger, the numbers, the better, the, the resolution. Number,
1: the better. Okay. Yeah. The larger number, the more capabilities it has, because what that detector is going to do when you go from a three to four processor to a six forty, then you have more detail available, but you have to have a screen that can display that it goes back to the 4k image on a, 720 tv if the tv doesn't have the ability to have that more detailed image you're never going to see it
0: well when i bought my first thermal through you you know you walked me through this process and and i told you i said you know what warren i said i'm i'm not going to night hunt a lot i'm still going to be a primarily a day hunter um and you talked about how familiar you need to be with this night hunting equipment to be efficient with and i knew that was going to be the case and i knew i just wasn't going to hunt enough with it to probably ever get really, really good with it. So I wanted something that matched my day optics as close as I could, you know? And that's when I told you, I said, you know what? I run a lot of magnification in the daytime. I, r- I keep my scope at like 10 power, 10, 11 power all the time. I never really run it lower than that, but I do like to zoom it into like 20 and higher for those shots. And you said, well, you know, you want this, the Genesis 75, which allows me to get it up to what? I think 11 is the is the mid Mid mag it starts at five and a half is the base image. Five and
1: a half to eleven to twenty three. And then
0: it goes up to eleven. So I can actually put my scope, my my thermal scope on eleven as I'm hunting with it. And then I really see the same scope picture as I do in my daytime scope. So when it comes to shooting running coyotes, um, you know, I shot a quite a few running coyotes when we we're filming that thermal stuff, you know, because it's the same sight picture I'm getting in my day scope as I'm getting in my night scope. It's not that. I'm not going from a 10 power day scope to all of a sudden trying to shoot coyotes in a one and a half power thermal scope, you know, which you want to talk about not being very efficient at killing coyotes. That's in my opinion, the best way to make it happen by going from bouncing back and forth from, from different sight pictures and things like that. So that's the reason I went with, with what I did, um, for that simple fact of the magnification and keeping as close as I could to the day optics I have.
1: And when you look at the industry, you know, there's. For industry first that we brought to the market, the, the very first right, the very first thermal scope that I had at Shot Show five years ago, had a laser rangefinder on it. You know, there's some competitors out there now that you know they they sell way more than we do and got a lot more money to play with than we do that are just now starting to get into the laser rangefinder market. Um, so that was a huge asset for us because oh, definitely. no matter what kind of if it, if it's red lights, if it's night vision, if it's thermal. The one thing that's consistent across the board that you don't have is depth perception. Yep, yep. So knowing the distance of an animal, you sometimes you can look out there on flat terrain, and you know, for us, it'll look like a pig at 150 yards when it's really an armadillo at 60 yards, <laughs> yeah. because this body shape is the same. They both yeah, have yeah. that same round profile but if you can know the distance to it automatically that instead of you having to walk out there, get, you know, get out, get your stuff set up, <laughs> yep. walk, make an approach and realize, Oh my God, it's an armadillo. <laughs> um, it'll save you some time. Um, the, the other thing that we came out, our product from the outset, there's, and there's multiple terms that address this. It, it's shutter, it's refresh, nuke, regen, whatever it is. It's a property to a thermal device that Every one and a half to three seconds, essentially, it's like the cache memory, if you will, to simplify it. That that image will still frame while it clears its cache memory so it can start recording that information again, given the processor time to take it and work it. So um, now, when you're hunting pigs or something like that, where you have a little more time, that's not as detrimental. But a, a true coyote hunter knows one and a half to three seconds is an eternity with a coyote. Oh, yeah. It can be the difference in a coyote approaching you at 100 yards and three seconds later, he's leaving you at 300 yards. So I have always the first, never used a thermal device that did that. And my now business partner was hunting with me. And of course, I had him, his son and my daughter on night vision scopes. I'm spotting. And I, he had a, a, a Pulsar device, and I didn't want to bring my big bulky camera out, so I was using his. Well, they're waiting on direction from me. We were on a sponsor's property. I've been trying to kill these coyotes for two years. I got them coming on, and they're, man, they're coming on a rope. Well, my shooters are waiting on me to tell them what to do. And they're like, okay, they're, they're 150, they're 120, you know, waiting on them to get in close. And all of a sudden, that thing still framed or, or nuked on me. And I caught myself at about the three-quarter position of throwing it across a peach <laughs> I realized this is a $4,000 device that doesn't belong to me. <laughs> and I, right then at the outset, I told our guys, I don't care what, how, how we plan to move forward, we always have to remain shutter free. And, and ours is one of the only ones that is shutter free. And that's been another one of our hurdles for going to the 640 step has been being able to remain shutter-free. Um, we've, we've achieved that now, but the state of the world right now has slowed component access down a lot.
0: Oh, for sure, and everything. And we
1: had hoped to have that product develop in March. We're still driving to that, but there's so many things behind the scenes that people don't see there that just being able to move components and, and products around, it's crazy how that side of the world that the average person will never see how restricted it's become. But the other thing we did was we talked about those, that functionality, you know, as just as temperature changes over the course of the night, you know, uh, do you sets in, you get a little more humidity, you need to be able to go in and adjust your, you know, with hours you have four rain, you have four degrees of adjustment to be able to take some of that humidity effect out of it. And, um, but you need to be able to access that. And instead of having a, a you know in the dark and you're trying to push buttons through a bunch of menus and this complicated way to get to it. Three years ago, we came out with what we called our super controller, which is the knob like you have on yours, where you can cycle through this, what you want to adjust. You push a button and it puts you into adjust it. In 15 seconds, I can change my reticle type, my reticle color, my background color. Any of those adjustments I can make on the fly with one control, that was a need from the field. Um, We were the first to have onboard recording. Um, What we have now is we actually have one button that any adjustable function of the scope, it's a user button that you can assign that to when you want, like, let's say that you wanted to change your reticle type. Instead of going through the menu, one touch of the button, you can instantly access that function and adjust it. Our latest version, there's actually two buttons that you can assign that way now. You can program your on-off button to be a second instant access feature. So, again, they're continuing to evolve, but ours is more about function. Now, one other thing that you need to keep in mind, because when you look out there at what people call a thermal device, if if light helps your image, that is a digital camera. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, It has thermal properties. It's not a true thermal scope because you can run a thermal in the daytime as long as you don't look directly at the sun um, because light doesn't affect it. It's reading heat. But there are some products out there at the more affordable end that you know you buy it, but then you have to put a flashlight on top of it. So, I mean, you kind of almost defeating the purpose. Certainly, it's market segment that that fits into, but that is one of the other differences in the quality of the thermal image that you'll get. Again, I guess the short term I use is when you're looking at, you know, you're, you're, you you say you got $3,000 to spend, but you could spend another thousand or 1500 and gain a whole lot more features. You buy once cry once. Cause I see a lot of these guys that I did it when I first got into the night vision game when I bought my thermal camera, I bought a cheaper night vision scope just because I only had so much money to work with. And of course my partner had a top end night vision scope and he could see stuff. I couldn't, I had to use my illuminator where he didn't. And about a month and a half in all of a sudden, like, you know, I think you said you sold a bunch of guns and some other stuff to be able to buy (laughs) your thermals. Yeah. I borrowed money against my truck to buy this stuff. And then all of a sudden I'm looking for something else to sell because I well, within a month, I'm trying to upgrade my night vision screen. So I, I learned the buy once, cry once thing very yeah, early on. when
0: I when I jumped in, I think I sold seven ARs and a four wheeler.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but you know, you've got a product now that the newer stuff definitely is technology continually improves over time. But you know, you still got a good optic that could carry you through for a long time.
0: Oh, hands down. Now, back to your m- money question here for you. You know, if somebody had three thousand dollars sitting there, I mean, what would be your spill to them to say, hey, you're gonna maybe save up a little bit more, you know, maybe look in that five thousand range. I mean, would you say they're gonna be a lot more happy with with a product probably in that range than they would going in that two to three thousand range?
1: I think they will because let's look at automobiles. If you I'm a huge analogy guy because I try to put things in perspective. I can talk tech speak and just lose people. i become Charlie Brown's teacher (laughs) because nobody understands what I'm saying. So I try to use it and put it in terms that people relate to every day. I'm just going to pick a brand, okay? What's the difference in a Chevy C1500 work truck and a 2500 Denali? Oh, yeah. It's the same chassis, same engine, same drivetrain, same body, but it's the creature comforts. But how many 2,500 Denali's do you see on the road versus C-1500 work trucks? You know, the creature comforts are the things that make the difference and justify the more money. The other thing for me, secondly, is customer service. You know, any product's going to have issues, but when you need help, who are you going to talk to? You know, that's another thing that comes into play is being able to get your product taken care of. I can say at this point, now, as we grow, that dynamic may change. But if I've ever had a customer that had a product, had had a problem with their product, I always put something in their hands to use until I got theirs repaired. Because I know the investment that you made. I've I've been down that road. And, you know, we're gonna try we try to build the absolute best quality we can build. But at the same token, stuff things are gonna happen. If I'm in a position where I got something I can put in your hands to use, I'm gonna do it. So, those are when you, it's just like when you're buying a car and and trying to make those decisions, it's, you know, what am I going to gain for this little bit more money? For me, if you told me I needed to save another $1,200 to have one that wasn't going to nuke on me, uh, that in itself would be worth it. If you're a coyote hunter, like I said, that one and a half to three seconds is an eternity.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: Um, And the other thing is, like I said, with ours, Uh, what I like about ours is how easy it is to adjust it to the conditions that you're in. Um, Simple, another simple point. One of the things that we found, because this is what we do now. If I go out, if we take a group or whatever's going on, you know, I've got my rifle on a tripod locked down tight and, and I'm running the call and I'm trying to scan and I'm doing so many functions that it didn't take me long to learn that, the backlight out of the eyepiece of that scope was shining right on my chest, and that's one of the biggest things that'll give you away at night is light. I don't care if it's a, a coyote, a pig, or what it is. In total darkness, a flicker of light—you think about it from a human perspective—you know that's a dead giveaway when you see a flash of light, especially in total darkness. It doesn't take much light to to, uh, to attract your attention. So we had a fe- we have a feature called Super Contrast that really is what drove that one-touch button. My, the engineers put other functions to it. The only reason I wanted it was because I wanted to be able to immediately dim my screen. But then when I get on my gun, I can touch that button, and I've got my full image back immediately. I didn't have to go back in there and turn my brightness up or whatever it was. I can touch it. What it does is it, it highlights the hottest spot in the field and kind of dummies down some of the background stuff. Well, I found myself now, I don't ever I don't ever raise it back up again. I've started shooting on that setting because when I first get there, number one, I've got my scanner. I'm looking at the terrain, like having a good idea of where things are if there's something I need to be attuned to, some vegetation or something I need to know about. But like I said, shooting at a spot on an animal and all of a sudden he's that much contrasted different difference against the background. I just personally prefer that, but it's, it's having options because everybody's eye is different.
0: Oh yeah. Well, you're right on the, you hit the nail on the head when you said about using these, like I, I've used mine handful of times and I don't, (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, wow, I don't know why I've never used that feature, but I never have, you know, just like you said, I haven't used it enough to, you know, I use the range finder all the time. You know, that is the, in my opinion, that's the biggest thing. And I use the zoom. Um, you know, it's easy to focus on that obviously, but you know, I just need to get out and use it more and and mess with some of those color palettes. And like you said, the contrast and, and things like that, but all awesome features.
1: The other thing that I'm most excited about that we did this year and and it's across the line is increase. Like you said, range finders always been very critical to me too, but uh, you know, we've always had a 700 yard range finder. But any range finder, when, when they grade it, when they tell you it's 700-yard capacity, that's on a reflective surface. On a non-reflective surface, you can about cut that in half. So a 700-yard range finder, there's certain nights I've found that if an animal's body is wet, they have a little more reflectivity to them. I can use, Sometimes I can get out to 400, 450 yards. Um, so I'm just over that halfway point. But that rangefinder consistently work about three hundred fifty and in. Well, as I expand my shooting capabilities, now that I can zoom and still clear back up, I'm getting more comfortable shooting a little further. We just recently went to a sixteen hundred yard rangefinder on every product we have.
0: Oh, nice. So
1: now my functional range is eight hundred yards. So now whether I'm wanting to shoot that far, at least if I see something out there in the distance, we're back to that question again. You know
0: is it a a rabbit or a coyote
1: (laughs) is that a mule deer out there at you know 700 yards or is it a deer at 1200 yards i can range further now to know better is that something i need to approach or not
0: nice nice
1: so it's um we're focused on again trying to give the absolute best value for your dollar so that's why I said that extra. Now, another thing we've been able to do because we have grown a little bit is make some bigger component buys this year. Um, through the whole COVID thing, you know, what we're experiencing now in, in the Ukraine with the Soviet Union and that whole block of the world, um, we've actually had some component manufacturers during COVID that went out, went belly up. They went out of business. So we had to completely source product from somebody else. So it was us scrambling to find, try to find a replacement that was going to give us the same image quality that we had, that we prided ourselves on, um, find another component that would fit into our structure. And fortunately, we're able to come through that. And so it's been an interesting past three years in this business, but through being able to do some bigger component buys and stuff, we've actually been able to drop our retail price down you know, considerably to get us more in line with some of those other manufacturers that are out there.
0: Nice.
1: Um, This is where I have to tiptoe lightly because I, 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 I'm always too blunt. (laughs) The other thing that you have to ask your question is where do you want your stuff made? I'm one of those that I, it matters to me where a product's made. It matters to me where my money, I spend my money, you know, where's it going? You can take any product, I don't care what it is, and go to an offshore manufacturer. You can go to China or you can go, you know, some countries like that are good at taking a product and knocking it off and copying it and being able to do it cheaper. Um, And we've had the opportunity to do that. Me, different than a lot of other people, a lot of guys in the U.S. are just, they're salespeople they're buying these thermals and reselling them and they learn a little bit about them, but they really don't understand the component side of it. I've been fortunate to be exposed to that side of it and to see the nuts and bolts of it. And a lot of times what will happen is these companies will go in, like the Chinese companies will go in there and knock a product off. And let's say they come to a manufacturer and say, Hey, we've got this. Do you want to buy? Yeah. I'll partner with you. I want to buy 1500 of them. Well, at the end of the year, if you've only bought 1,300 of them, they'll go sell it to somebody else. You know, if you take your design to them and have them to build it, there's no patent and copyright and trade laws there. There's nothing stopping them from taking, like in our case, where we have something that we've built from ground zero, for me to take it over there and get it built 30% cheaper, you know, would make me more competitive in the market. But I'm not willing to risk that that I have five competitors show up next year selling my product against me. So we try to retain that as well. Um, So a a lot of that plays into those decisions. But, again, we're trying to give you the best bang for your buck.
0: For sure. You know, this was really good information. You know, I've looked into thermal a little bit, but I've never found the specs you talked about, you know, really – other than just looking at the price and saying, okay, uh, I see a 640. A lot of guys only look at that, and they'll see that 640 or that 384 or whatever it is. Um, they might look at the Zoom. Other than that, it's it's very hard to get the information you need. So hopefully somebody listened to this, you know, got if a good you idea on, now.
1: You go to most most of the manufacturers' websites, um, if, you, if you look around, you can find their spec sheet. Um, I, I just did a comparison of this myself. For us to know, I mean, you you have you always have to know what your competition's doing. So for my guys, I went in and did that. I went in and did a comparison chart of you know here's all here's all of our competitors along with us, and here's you know uh, a a chart of all the specs, who has what, how do we compare. That's out there. Like I said, you just have to look for it. But then you have to understand what does it mean.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think you get
1: into even though you get into, okay, this guy's got a 4k screen. And this guy's got a 4k screen is what's the quality of the 4k screen. Cause the 4k screen puts you back into, is it a car or a truck? There's a big difference yep, in yep. cars and trucks and the quality and the functions. So um, what I tell people is try to find an opportunity. And, and, and some people say this is a little bit arrogant. It's not, it's just really what I did in the beginning I challenge them. We had another major competitor at SHOT Show one year set up at their booth right beside us. And we I thought it was like an intimidation thing because all the other optics people were upstairs. We were the lone optics guys downstairs. And this I won't name the brand, but these big guys set up next to us and all of our guys are panicking. And I was like, what you scared of? <laughs> First day of the show, a guy comes walking by and I said, I said hey man, you interested in thermal optics. And he was like, oh, yeah, but I only buy a brand name. And I was like, ours is a brand name. Oh, no, 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 I, I, I buy the best. I said, if you don't mind me asking, what do you run? He said, oh, well, I run Brand X. I said, that's funny. You know, they're right here beside us. He was like, yeah, that's where I'm going. I said, do this, go over there and get the best thing they have and bring it over here and let's compare them side by side because I'm going to win either way guy's like, what do you mean? I said, well, either big boy brand X over there is going to come over here and outshine the little guy and beat up on the little guy or the little guy is going to make him look bad. I win either way. <laughs> okay. So he marches over there and, you know, he comes back over to me and said, man, they won't let me bring a scope over here. I've never seen this guy before in my life. You've been to SHOT Show. There's a gazillion people running around. I hand him my scope. I said, well, take this one over there. They would not allow him to bring it in the booth. (laughs) When he come back, I said, what do you reckon they're scared of? The whole time I'm talking, the brand deck suit guy that was running the booth was standing right there at the corner listening to every word I said. I turned to my guys. I said, we don't have anything to be scared of, guys. (laughs) So, And I do. I encourage people. You need to try to look through, if you get that opportunity, as many product as you can. Cause that's really the way that, you know, because as, as much function as we try to build into ours, it's not going to fit every eye you may find that somebody else's fits you personally better. And there's some great products out there. I, I can't take anything away from the other guys. It's just, like I said, finding out where you're getting the most advantage.
0: Well, if, if somebody's wanting to look, look at your full moon optics lineup, what's what's the best place for them to do that?
1: Um, Fullmoonoptics.com is our website. Um, We do have Instagram. We have, uh, we've got a YouTube channel. Now I've got to get busy and put some updated stuff out there on the YouTube channel. I have not been the best in the world about that. Got to focus on doing that now. Um, So that will increase some. But uh, if anybody's interested, like I said, if you pick up the phone and call Full Moon Optics, you're going to talk to me or you're going to talk to Brian, my partner um we can put you in touch with guys that run our stuff you know I've got guys that have sold every brand you can think of to run ours once I gave them a side-by-side
0: challenge uh, well then too you know those last stand episodes season four I think it was episodes uh, seven and eight um we ran some thermal episodes and I was recording through my you know genesis 75 so there's some images of that you'll see um and things like that so give you a, a good idea man
1: well, then we'll too. Um, Instagram is probably where we have the most information there and on Facebook. Uh, I'm terrible at social media. That's why I have <laughs> Brian to do all that. He's my marketing guy. I'm the one doing all behind the behind scenes stuff. Um, but yeah, when you guys do your next episode, we're gonna we're, we're gonna improve your image quality a little bit. I'm gonna upgrade you.
0: I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> we got some we got some new ideas, man. It was a it was an interesting, you know, filming trip for us. You know, we we're a lot of new stuff took place and a lot of ideas were generated on, on what we want to do next time. So we're looking forward to it. That's good. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on. That was a lot of great information. I mean, uh, like I said, we've done thermal episodes before, but it's more of the hunting aspect, not the the specifications and technical stuff. So hopefully somebody to listen to this got a lot of great information and help them, you know, obviously thermal is not cheap, you know, it's a big investment and uh, you know, being able to do some research and have some information handy. I think is extremely important. So appreciate all that.
1: Well, the other thing you'll find too, that the people, I tell people all the time, my wife, for example, a lot of times with work, I'm gone at night, either work or if I'm hunting or whatever, you know, now if she hears a noise outside, she'll, she uses my monocular as much as I do because she'll, she knows she can get that thing on and, and, you know, peek out the door and she can see everything that's out there. So it, it is there anything out there? No, but it gives her a, a security, you know, comfort level to know that you know everything's okay instead of her sitting around wondering if something going on outside.
0: Oh for sure. Uh, you you can use point. it in other hey, industries as well. Selling point to the wife right there, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's all about the the security thing. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean there's uh but like you said, you use the keyword, it is an investment. And any any product that we buy is an investment and you just have to evaluate out to where you feel like that your money's going to be most well spent.
0: Sounds good, man. Fullmoonoptics.com. Check it out. If you're in the market, give them a look for sure. Well, I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as always got to thank our sponsors that help bring you this, this great content, Lucky Duck, Predator Calls, Swagger Bipods, Six Hour Optics, Onyx Hunt, Cryptech, Hornady, and Black Rifle Coffee Company. And of course, always a big thanks to Eastman's for bringing this all together uh, and bringing it to you on the podcast world. So until next time, thanks for listening. We'll catch you right here on Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast.